Hey, Stakes listeners, this is part two of a three-part series about the relationship between climate change and gentrification. We're making it with our partners at WLRN, which is Miami's public radio station. If you haven't heard episode one, go back and check it out. This time, Stakes reporter Christopher Johnson takes us into Miami's Liberty City. I'm Kai Wright, and these are The Stakes. In this episode, Buying into Black. All right, so the best place to start, Kai, is by introducing you to somebody. Us being Miamians, like, we have, like, a certain type of accent, right? This is Valencia Gunder. She's a community activist, native Miamian, absolutely Southern. We don't think we country like the rest of the South. (laughs) Oh, but you are. You are. Yeah, we got a little Southern draw, but you can't you can't tell a Miami and we country. <laughs> so Valencia traces her South Florida roots all the way back to her great, great, great grandfather. That's about the 1870s. This is before Miami was even a city. The other side of my family, which came from the Bahamas, was one of the pioneer families that came to settle here and actually helped build Miami. So South Florida's first Blacks worked pineapple plantations and lime farms and starch mills. They were maids. They were servants, turtle hunters. They chopped through the mangrove swamps and forced their way down into stubborn coral rock, building luxury hotels and seawalls to protect them from the ocean. These were black hands, Kai, building South Florida, making it so. My grandmother, well, my great-grandmother, actually remembers being here in Liberty City when it was just her house sitting on a dirt road. So Valencia, who was born in the mid-'80s, she grew up in Liberty City, and she lives there now. And, I, man, I could listen to her talk all day about her hometown. Um, my grandma would force us to go outside because she didn't like us in front of the TV all the time. We didn't have to go in for lunch because the fruit trees. Like, me and my friends used to literally get a bowl, and we'd go get all these fruits and peel them and put them in the bowl. And, like, seven of us sit around the bowl and we eat. And, like, having a fish man after he go catch all his fish coming to my grandma's house selling her 10 fresh snappers. Like, that was Liberty City. So there's something else really special about Liberty City and other nearby neighborhoods. In the last episode, we talked about how, although Miami to the naked eye is pretty flat, there's actually a limestone ridge that runs north-south through the area. Liberty City is up on that ridge, just like Little Haiti, its neighbor to the east. And like Valencia says, we sit higher than everybody else. So... I always talk about my grandfathers and my grandmothers because they paid such a major part of my life. Um, Valencia's family foresaw a future where the fate of Liberty City and that of folks on the coast would one day intertwine. So my grandfather, he always would talk to us and like, they're going to come steal our communities because it don't flood. Like, I remember him saying this as a young child. Like, that was common knowledge in Liberty City for many years. They didn't know the science. They just knew and understood that when flooding happens everywhere else, it don't flood over here. And they knew that that was going to be one of the triggers for them to come take our communities. Wow, and that's such clear language, take our communities. So they were talking about gentrification in that way, even back then. 
She's kind of talking about something else. And so when I started digging into this question of how climate change and gentrification would impact neighborhoods like Liberty City, I ran into this concern over and over again. Not just that we would be priced out, but that we might actually get picked up and moved to the side. And maybe it sounds a little paranoid, but for Black Miami in particular, when you bring up this idea of being pushed off land, like suddenly physically pushed, physically pushed, like suddenly and in mass, everybody's got to get up and go. There is one very real event that everybody wants to talk about. The overtime of years ago was a community striving, had lots of businesses, had 50,000 residents. Overtime was, was 5th Street to 21st Terrace. And from railroad to railroad. This is from a documentary that's called Overtown in the Making. This place was, you had, had wall-to-wall stored. We had three movies here. We had three hotels. The Carver Hotel was right there on that corner. Everything that you needed to live, work, and have fun. Like the rest of Miami, Overtown begins in the wilderness of Biscayne Bay. Starting in the 1890s, dozens of black laborers were hired to clear mangrove swamps and break through coral rock, making a path for the railroad. Biscayne Boulevard was all palmetto bushes. It was nothing. Naomi and Agnes Roll's father was a Bahamian migrant who helped turn this wilderness into a destination city that would be called Miami. And he worked out there with the machete, cutting palmetto bushes in order to get Biscayne Boulevard built. We are rooted in that community. We built Miami. Our folks built Miami. The earliest workers lived in camps, and those camps morphed into a place first called Colored Town, and sometimes worse, and then Overtown. And that's where the Roll sisters are from. It's where their father built many of the homes, including the one that they grew up in. And my father and his mother built that house together, you know, with their own two hands. It was our pride and joy. By the 1920s and 30s, Overtown becomes a bona fide little city. It's got black churches, black nightclubs, celebrities, musicians, and just regular folks. And in fact, many of those celebrities would have been in town to entertain white people over in Miami Beach and other neighborhoods. Right. But segregation, of course, forced them to stay in the black neighborhoods when they were off stage. And this is a familiar story for black communities all over the country, right? I mean, ironically, segregation is part of what created such dynamic black neighborhoods in Harlem and Pittsburgh and Chicago and even around the South in places like Overtown. Right. It would have been a magical walk down Second Avenue in 1930, 1935. Marvin Dunn is a historian who's done a lot of research on Miami's origin story. You'd smell fish frying. You'd smell <laughs> chitlins cooking. You'd see children playing. You'd see old men playing checkers and drinking beer. You'd see a lot of folks sitting out on their porches just taking in the, the sights along the avenue. You'd see men in zoot suits. You didn't come down on the avenue after work unless you had showered and shave and put on your coat and tie, you'd see women dressed in the finest fashion that you'd see in Broadway. So, Kai, Overtown was the place to be. Right. Right? But alongside all of this, and as the larger city of Miami becomes this glitzy tourist and celebrity destination, we can't lose sight of that, there's a whole other side of Overtown. If you went just one or two blocks away from all of the glitter, you had misery and crowded conditions and 
dangerous conditions with the wooden houses that were built so close together that presented such a threat with fires and what have you. Right, but still, what I'm hearing is a very familiar Black story. I mean, on one hand, it's a community forced into a ghetto, cut off from opportunity and capital, where people are being bled by slumlords. But at the same time, it's a community where people are making their own space and their own way inside that ghetto, despite everything. Mm, Exactly. And by the way, Black families who dared to move out to other parts of Miami, to parts that weren't designated for Black people, outside of Black neighborhoods, they faced harassment, firebombing, and sometimes much worse. And then came urban renewal. Urban renewal prompted because of the interstate system. The national highway system is expanding, and Miami wants in. Tenement neighborhoods and blighted commercial districts replaced by modern communities, all bringing a new face to the American cityscape. The city wants to bring Interstate 95 through downtown. So the first plan they draft is to run it through Miami's commercial district. But business leaders say, no way. Mm. Instead, the city opts for plan B, to build 95 right through the heart of Overtown. So they start making offers to homeowners in their path, including families like the Rolls. When they were first talking about the I-95 project, and dad, you know, my dad used to say, I ain't selling my house. And I, you know, he didn't, they didn't want to do it. The black community was opposed to the interstate coming down 7th Avenue. We knew that meant it was going to destroy most of of Overtown. And that's exactly what happened. Blacks had no political power when these decisions were being made. And the white power structure had all of the power. This is exactly what happened to the Roll family, Kai. They had no choice. So like tens of thousands of their neighbors, they packed up their life and they moved, landing in Liberty City. He was depressed from the time he left Overtown until the time he died. He was depressed. Kai, I cannot overstate how atomic I-95 was for Black Miami. Even just now talking about it, I get a little upset. It was a massive marching of Black folks up and out of a community that was theirs. They built it, a community that was started, by the way, by the same people who first cleared the land, built the seawalls and the roads and the hotels that became Miami. This neighborhood belonged to their descendants, who became disposable. Overtown had been home to more than 50,000 Miamians, but when it was all over, less than 10,000 were left. Because Valencia's grandfather was right, they will come and they will take our land, and if they want it, they can do it. So a lot of families, especially um, pioneer families that had settled in Overtown, they still talk about how much they lost, like their family was building there, their homes. And I mean... It's like blatantly disrespectful because the highway literally goes straight through, you know, it dead smack dab in the middle of black communities. And Miami just does a over the top job of, I guess, doing the most like Miami just bulldozed through. I think the psychic consequence of what happened here with I-95 was that it showed Blacks here how powerless we were at that moment. And it showed us how vulnerable we were to decisions made by people who didn't look like us and who had no particular interest in our priorities. Uh, And I think it resonated with us through history as being basically an insult to the Black community because people simply implemented that decision 
with very little consultation to black people who lived in that community. And we've heard this in other cities, this idea of urban renewal or slum clearance or whatever you call it, but pushing people out and ultimately creating new ghettos, which is how poverty and race became so intertwined in American cities. And this is exactly what happened in Miami, because through the 60s and early 70s, many of the Black folks displaced by I-95, they moved into Liberty City, and they brought with them this deep wound called I-95. And over the next couple of decades, Liberty City struggles. A night of mayhem in Miami has been followed by a day of more tension and more trouble. There were new reports of arson, looting, and another death. There's a deadly riot in the spring of 1980. A dusk-to-dawn curfew has been imposed on northwest Miami following a day and night of killing, looting, and burning that left at least 10 persons dead and 120 injured. The violence broke out after a white male jury in Tampa found four white former Dade County policemen innocent in the death of black Miami businessman Arthur McDuffie. In this riot, 18 people were killed, $100 million in property damage. Business leaders in Liberty City packed up and they headed for the exit. There was a massive exodus of capital during the 1980s. This is the same decade that crack cocaine hits. Drive through certain sections of South Florida and you will find people willing to sell you drugs. Heroin, cocaine, and the most popular these days, crack cocaine. And Valencia, who grew up in Liberty City in the 1980s, she's seeing all of this as a kid. It became like this nightmare for people. 15th Avenue became like a zombie land. Like you walk down the street and you can see the addicts walking around aimlessly. Like, it's not like that anymore because they done cleaned it up and they're doing things to get it better. But oh my God, the 80s and the 90s, it was horrible. All of this is happening around Valencia. And meanwhile, her family and the folks in her community, some of whom had lived through I-95, they're trying to warn her. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, they want it. They want it, like, pay attention. And at the time, I'm like, nobody don't want this place. Like, I, nobody want it. I was ready to go myself because, like, at this moment in time, like, people are, like, abandoning their homes. And, like, you're starting to see empty lots and tore down houses. And it was horrible. Valencia loves her family. She loves her community. She loves Miami. But she wasn't blind. Like, Liberty City had been falling apart for more than a decade. And what she saw wasn't a place that anyone would want to take. Meanwhile, Valencia goes away to college. And when she comes back, she finds a community that's already transforming. There were these new apartment buildings. The public parks were getting makeovers. And Valencia's own high school had been totally renovated. And I heard people saying, like... Oh, my grandfather, who had his store for 30 years, can't afford to have the store no more. I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean? I don't understand. And her neighbors told her straight up, they're gentrifying. And then I started to play back in my head like, they're going to take our communities because it don't flood. Valencia's not alone. Folks in Liberty City are watching what's happening just over in Little Haiti. And they're getting ready. That's next. There's something always on our mind, like, hey, you know they're going to raise his rent because there's Midtown Eye Center next door. Like, you know what I mean? No shade to them, but it's like... This is Valencia's good friend, James Munchen. Goes by Munch. 
He's co-owner of a business in Liberty City, which is nearby the far more trendy neighborhood of Midtown. Those neighborhoods, but they got the name on it because they're like trying to call this that neighborhood. Yeah, right across the street. What does it say? Midtown Miami Eye Center. And this is not Midtown. No, this is Liberty City. Munch is sort of an entrepreneur activist. He and a group of friends own a place called Roots Collective Black House. The kind of a retailer. This is the Black House showroom. But also an event space and an arts collective. We have the clothing line. This is all Black-owned clothing, Black-owned messaging about how to be unapologetically Black. Um, we have Juneteenth. We got but first and foremost, they're about right Black ownership. If you grab that one, that's from Issa Rae. I'm rooting for everybody Black. Munch and the Roots Collective come from a lineage of Black political thought that doesn't get much attention outside the Black community, but that remains strong in many of our neighborhoods. We try to keep that dollar circulating because we understand it. And as Charlemagne said this once, it's not about selling out, it's about getting people to buy in. Our brand is about buying into the Black, you know what I'm saying? Buying into Black, Black greatness, you know, buying into melanin, you know, right. invest in it. It's worth, it's worth millions. You know? <laughs> This idea that we have what we need right here inside this community, it traces back to places like Overtown, where strict segregation meant that the only business Black people were going to do was among ourselves. And it has a political corollary. Nobody is going to save us but us. Munch says he was reminded of that back in September 2017. Highways are jam-packed this morning across the state of Florida. At least nine counties are issuing full or partial mandatory evacuations. Uh, We just got alerts on our phone. There is a tornado warning. They are telling people to take cover. Things are very serious here in Miami, and we will be... When Hurricane Irma hit Miami, the streets of downtown turned into rivers. They said, oh, you know what? Miami's not going to get it that bad. Wrong. Liberty City sitting up on high ground didn't have that extreme flooding. But like so many other places, it did lose power, which meant it lost easy access to food in an already poor neighborhood. In terms of staging meals, they've got right now 10 million meals ready to go in the area, in Florida and the surrounding states, and about 13 and a half million liters of water. So like the distribution spots were on 7th Avenue and 23rd Avenue. But majority of the seniors stay literally from 10th to the 14th, really. They have a whole community center for senior folks, but they didn't put no ice, no distribution there for them. You know what I mean? Because they're not going to be able to walk. There's no way possible. So literally, I'm with ice bags walking from 7th Avenue to 10th. In the days after the storm, Valencia and Munch and others in Liberty City realized this was how things were going to go. So they made their own emergency response plan. So we had access to resources, which was a a warehouse. We knew that all it took was social media to kind of like get people to donate. V said, hey, we got we got a grill. I got our our first we got like 100 hot dogs. We just going to go to neighborhoods and just make sure they got hot food because right now we can't save ourselves. Help is not coming to much. That's how Liberty City is going to have to confront gentrification, too whether it's caused by climate change or just the familiar rush for cheap property. Like, power is one thing. Power is just simply the ability to act, but then you've got capital. You know, and a lot of times to move things, you need that capital. The winner call all the rules, like, and that's what's happening right now. We just, on the, at, the, at the end, like, it's a monopoly game, and we just on the losing end, and we got to start educating ourselves on how to, how to beat the system. The capitalist revolutionary used the master's tools to tear down his own house. 
I don't know that I'm sold, but it's a powerful idea because it honors the investments so many have already made. The people who built Overtown, the people who turned the dirt roads of Liberty City into a neighborhood, the people who cleared the swamps that became Miami, for that matter, and those who built Little Haiti. He felt that it was in the American spirit that the Haitians have a community which they can call their own. Coming up, we go back to Little Haiti to get its origin story. How'd this community get here? And what's going to happen to its residents if they can't stay? So they picked them up. He did some jail time. They locked them up. And then they gave them an option. You can either shut up or you can leave. But if you talk, you're dead. That's next on The Stakes. Stakes is a production of WNYC Studios and the newsroom of WNYC. This episode was produced in partnership with WLRN in Miami. It was reported and produced by Christopher Johnson, Nadege Green, and myself. It was edited by Karen Froman, who is also our executive producer, and Alicia Zuckerman, who is editorial director for WLRN. Casey Means is our technical director. The Stakes team also includes... Jenny Casas, Marianne McCune, John McCown, Jessica Miller, Kari Pitkin, Christopher Wirth, and Verilyn Williams. With help from Hannes Brown, Michelle Harris, Kim Nowaki, and Jared Paul. Stay in touch. You can hit me up on Twitter at Kai underscore right. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.